Thank you very much, Michael Wright. Um, well, like our keynote speaker, my thoughts are constantly torn between Poland 25 years ago and Ukraine 25 minutes ago. When, by the way, for those of you who haven't got the news, they've just agreed to release Yulia Timoshenko, uh, which is very encouraging news. Um, and I thought I would start just by a couple of reflections on the difference between these two, because I think it's quite an interesting place to start, or the connection between them. Um, Kiev the last week and elsewhere in Ukraine, um, brutal, arbitrary slaughter by militia snipers, um, massive violence on both sides, scenes that, as Alex Smalar suggested, make television crews saliva because they recognize them as being like revolution. That's what revolution looks like. Poland in 1989, completely different atmosphere. Um, none of the iconography of revolution that is familiar to most people, which only comes later in 1989 elsewhere in Central and Eastern Europe, but was there in Poland 10 years before in 1980-81. But this round table, very dull object, by the way, for those of you who haven't seen it, you can still see it in a wing of the presidential palace. And it is a very PRL, Polish People's Republic, piece of carpentry. It's not quite plastic wood, but it feels like plastic wood. Um, it, um, lots of um, quiet humor about what was happening. A sense, there was a sense of lightness about these events, despite the seriousness of what was going on. I have my notebook from April self-determination with representatives of the people, comes with the round table, comes with the Orange Revolution 10 years ago, and you descend from a round table into a morass of corruption and toxicity and deep violence. Let us hope the country now comes out of it. But the other point to make about what's happened in Ukraine in its relation to Poland is the fact that the EU, the European Union, has finally paid so much attention to Ukraine. The fact that the German, French, and Polish foreign ministers spent two days in Kiev is a direct result of the independence that Poland regained after 1989 and the fact that Poland has a quite distinctive and quite forceful foreign policy towards its eastern neighbors and the power inside the European Union <coughs> to bring others along, for example, Germany and France. So that's just a reflection on the connection between these two events 25 minutes ago and 25 years ago. Now, in terms of 25 years ago and how we assess it today, I'm afraid a hopeless respondent to our keynote speaker because I agree with almost everything he said. Um, so I'm going to try to disagree with myself, or at least to imagine what a disagreement with myself might be. Um, because 25 years is, as it were, the span of revisionism. 
right? This is when revisionists come along after 20, 25 years. And they revise the conventional wisdom which people like the keynote speaker and myself have advanced, namely that this was a peaceful self-limiting revolution of a unique and unprecedented kind, albeit building on elements that had been present before. We should not forget Spain, we should not forget Portugal, we should not forget the Philippines, we should not forget Chile, we should not forget the learning process <coughs> in the whole of East Central Europe. But nonetheless, in its realization, unprecedented, when was the revolution? Answer, it was a cumulative revolution. We have at least to look at the 10 years from summer 1980 to late 1989 or the beginning of <coughs> 1990 when the process is complete only because not just Hungary and Czechoslovakia, but as you said, crucially, East Germany <coughs> joins the process, therefore transforming the geopolitical context from the point of view of Moscow uh, for Poland. Um, a revolution which indeed offers a new default model of revolution, that of 1989, to supplant that of 1789. Which is not to say that people do not have recourse to violence. It is only to say that the default model since then has been that of some kind of peaceful revolution, of mass mobilization, ending <coughs> with a negotiated transition. And it is no accident that the Orange Revolution started very strongly with that model in mind. Uh, and even the recent events, the Euromaidan, started with that model in mind and then became something else. Okay, so what would revisionism <coughs> look like? What would a revisionist say? And of course there are many people who do challenge this view of what happened and its significance. Well, I would think about this, and I would say there are three ways, or two ways, in which, with a subcategory, in which I might be compelled to change my mind about an interpretation I've advanced for m many years. <coughs> um, the first would be if my mind changed, and the second would be if the facts changed. Um, that's to say, if I suddenly became converted to religious fundamentalism, then I would doubtless reinterpret 1989 <coughs> and see in it the will of the good Lord. Um, since that is, I hope, unlikely, let me turn to the facts changing. When the facts change, said John Maynard, <coughs> says, I don't, I changed my mind. I don't know about you. The historian's facts are of two distinct kinds. They are the facts of evidence brought to light by new sources, and the facts of consequences, or what are seen as long-term consequences, in the light of which we change our interpretation. Let me take those two in turn. <coughs> facts in terms of new evidence. I'll be very interested to hear Darius Stolar on this. I would submit that there is relatively little that really 
substantially changes our understanding of what happened in 1989. There is a for those of you who want to write a doctorate about this, superb documentation of the round table, in I think five or six volumes, I could only manage physically to get <coughs> um, There is a mass of material, of course, from Soviet and East European archives. It's remarkable how little, actually, this changes our understanding of what happened at the time, partly because so much was known at the time, except in one important respect, that the Soviet sources, the papers of the people close to Gorbachev and Gorbachev himself, indicate how far their private thinking had gone. That is to say, even though publicly they were very cautious in what they said and were still essentially endorsing some version of reformed socialism. It is clear that in private they had accepted or largely accepted that things might go even further than they wished and that they would not resist it with force. Right? This produces a trap for historical interpretation. Because then what was done, particularly by the solidarity side, in the negotiations at the round table, the many compromises they made are interpreted in the light of what we know now. That is to say, it seems to us now that it was inevitable that the Soviet Union would give up without a shot fired in anger the external empire, and simply reflect Poland becoming a liberal democracy, a member of the European Union, and NATO. Well, it certainly wasn't evident to anyone at all then. And we have to avoid what Henri Bergson called the illusions of retrospective determinism, the fallacy of believing that what actually happened had to happen. We have to understand the compromises, and there were deep compromises made in 1989, in the, in the light of the constant concern about <coughs> the limits of Soviet tolerance. And if you think I'm just saying that, let me read you just one more passage <coughs> from my notes written at the time in April 1989, a conversation with Bronisław Geremek, who, as Alexander Smolar mentioned, is really a key political architect of the whole roundtable process, in which he says, I quote, everything depends on what happens in the Soviet Union. There is, he says, the huge uncertainty about the Soviet Union. The fear is not so much as it was in 8081 of a direct Soviet intervention. But, and my notes say this, it is of what actually happened in 1991, a military coup. And Geremek in April 1989 was already anticipating that. So to do justice to the compromises made at the round table, you have to understand what people did not know at the time and how constrained they were. And this is, of course, the fundamental flaw 
with what Vladimir Poroje and Andrzej Galitsky call the black myth, the black myth of the round table, the myth of the secret deal <coughs> made behind closed door between what they call the red and the pink. Right? It does not understand what people felt were to be the really acute constraints at the time. That seems to me the one really significant uh, major new insight that we have from new sources. What about the consequences? Well, like our keynote speaker, I think the consequences 25 years on, if one looks at Poland today, <coughs> largely prove how right people were to choose the path of peaceful negotiated transition in 1989 with all its objectively and then subjectively necessary compromises. But I think there is one lesson to be learned from this experience. And the lesson, suitably enough, is about the importance of history itself and facing up to history in such a process of transition. In a velvet revolution, there is what Ernest Gellner called the price of velvet. The price of velvet is that former power holders, who often did very bad things indeed in the past, not only get away scot-free, but to go off to get very rich in the process through the so-called privatization of the nomenclatura. Think of Jerzy Orban, think of other prominent figures from communist Poland. And there is no sense of revolutionary catharsis. There's no storming of the Bastille. There's not that moment of the <coughs> catharsis when people say things have really changed. On the contrary, <coughs> if you are a worker in Gdansk <coughs> who worked, who sacrificed a lot in the ten years of solidarity, where did you end up ten years ago? <coughs> Unemployed. Right? And those former communists and UBEX security officers are now living in their villas. And so there is this sense of discontent of historical injustice. Now you cannot do anything about that through the legal system if you have a negotiated transition, as indeed in Spain. That's the deal. What you can do is have some kind of a public, symbolic, confrontation with the past. As happened in South Africa, as we will hear tomorrow from Colin Bundy, in the Truth and Reconciliation Commission. And in a way, what Poland did is to have its Reconciliation Commission, but no Truth Commission. Right? So the, the round table was kind of Reconciliation Commission, but there was no Truth Commission. Um, and this was a conscious choice. We will hear tomorrow about Spain. If you look at opposition writing in the 70s and 80s, the Spanish transition from fascism, from Franco, played a significant role. And one of the things that Polish dissidents learned, or wished to emulate, 
was let bygones be bygones. Amnesia and amnesty. Let's not talk about, let's not reopen these wounds. Let's simply look to the future. We have so many more urgent tasks. Our economy is ruins. We have to rebuild the country. We need to do it together. And I remember many conversations when the Spanish model was present. Now, Charles Power will tell us tomorrow whether it even worked in Spain. Because if one looks at the debates now about the Spanish Civil War, you might ask whether it has finally worked in Spain. But it sure as hell did not work in Poland. And the role that conspiracy theories, what someone has wonderfully called the harvest of paranoia, uh, that we get in peace, <coughs> the black legends about 1989 play, the extraordinarily prominent role they play, in Polish politics to this day is, I think, at least in part, the price that was paid for attempting to go, so to speak, the Spanish way only more so, and to have no symbolic or public reckoning of any significant kind, except perhaps in scholarship and journalism, and then subsequently, of course, in the, in the Institute of, of National Memory. Uh, with the past. So I think there is one lesson to be learned from the Polish example, from the perspective of 25 <coughs> years, and that lesson is that if you are going to do a Velvet Revolution, then learn also from Poland's mistakes as well as from what it got right, and be sure as well to have a truth commission. Thank you very much.